Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Grok Radio. The following broadcast is made possible by the friends and partners of CYI Worldwide Ministries and Grok Radio. And the views expressed in this program and by our guests may not necessarily reflect those of CYI Worldwide Ministries or its staff. And now, enjoy the show. You stand on the shore of the ocean watching the tide come in. You sense the call of the sea beckoning to take you in further. You step forward little by little not knowing what to expect, but expecting more. You keep going as the ocean calls calls you to enter in to deeper waters. talking about knowledge today, and I have two guests here to help me with that. That's Dr. Mark Foreman out of Liberty, and Dr. Amy Dew out of SCBTS, Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We're going to be talking about their book, How Do We Know? An Introduction to Epistemology. So let me tell you a little bit about them. Dr. Jamie Dew grew up in Statesville, North Carolina, but moved to Raleigh, North Carolina in 1994. Through a witness of some of his friends, he came to Christ when he was 18 years old and surrendered to vocational ministry shortly thereafter. He earned a B.S. in Biblical Studies from Dakota Falls College in Dakota, Georgia in 2000, and then moved to Wake Forest, North Carolina to work on his graduate degrees. He earned his Ph.D. in Theological Studies from the Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary in 2008 and is working on a second Ph.D., in philosophy from the University of Birmingham in England. He is the author of Science and Theology and Assessment of Alistair McGrath's Critical Realist Perspective, Griffin's Talk 2010. Co-author of How Do We Know? A Short Introduction to the Issues of Knowledge, which we're talking about today, and co-editor of God and Evil, The Case for God in a World of Pain, which, by the way, is an excellent book. I've read that one, reviewed it. Great book. Dr. Dew pastored in North Carolina for 10 years and also served in various churches as a youth pastor and minister to adults. Now Dr. Dew is a vice president for undergraduate studies and academic support and is the dean of a college at Southeastern. He has been married for 13 years to his wife, Tara, and they have two sets of twins, Nanny and Nathan and Samantha and Samuel. Two sets of twins must be a handful there. And for Dr. Mark Foreman, he is the Professor of Philosophy and Religion at Liberty University, where he has taught philosophy, apologetics, and bioethics for 25 years. He has an MABS from Dallas Theological Seminary and an MA and PhD from the University of Virginia. He is the author of Christianity and Bioethics, Prelude to Philosophy, and Introduction for Christians, how Do We Know, An Introduction to Epistemology, and Articles in the Encyclopedia of Christian Civilization, Popular Encyclopedia of Apologetics, as well as chapters in Come, Let Us Reason, New Essays in Christian Apologetics, Steven Spielberg in Philosophy, and Tennis in Philosophy. Mark has been a member of Evangelical Philosophical Society for over 20 years and is currently serving 
as vice president of society. His specializations are Christian apologetics, biomedical ethics, and ethics. Welcome, Dr. Foreman, to the show. Good to be here. Great to have both of you here. Now, what what we'd like to know here is um who are, who are you? Or first off, I've given your bios, but uh, let's start with you, Doctor Dew, since I read your bio first. Tell us a little bit about how you got to where you are today. Yeah, that was a very long uh, process, and it's a process that certainly led me somewhere that I never expected to be. This is the last thing on earth I ever thought I'd be doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, growing up, I always wanted to be in the military, had no desire to go to college or do anything academically whatsoever. I came to Christ after a fairly rough and, uh, or I should not necessarily rough, but sort of a wild teenage year um, or period. Got in a lot of trouble, a lot of drugs, alcohol, all those types of things. Moved to Raleigh, North Carolina when I was 17 years old. And about eight months later, I came to know Christ uh, through the, as you as you read there, through a witness of a friend of mine. And um, so I started started preparing for ministry, as you read. Certainly, you know, I thought I'd, at that point I might be a pastor or something like that, and I surely have been. And uh, it was basically by witnessing to people all the time, sharing my faith with people all the time, and encountering people that don't believe the way I do, skeptics and critics and atheists and agnostics and those types of things, but it really sort of took me back, and I, as I would share the gospel with them, and, and they would remain skeptical, it bothered me, and I wanted to start studying apologetics so I could learn how to answer those types of questions, and I like to tell people that really, that's how it all started, but at some point in the process, as I'm studying philosophy and apologetics and all these things for really evangelistic purposes, um, I really started to struggle with some of these questions myself. And so I always tell people that, you know, at some point in the process, the skeptic question sort of became my own question. Mm-hmm. And um, I just kind of got to the point where I had to know myself. And so by the end of college, I was studying, as you mentioned, biblical studies. By the end of college, I was already deeply in love with philosophy and apologetics, but really at this point more for personal reasons than, than evangelistic reasons. Right. went off to seminary, took all the philosophy I could get my hands on, read everything I could get my hands on, and really, again, just still kind of struggling and doubting with these things. And so, in many ways, my academic career was born out of evangelism and also born out of just personal questions that I had early on. And um, so I was really interested in, in the existence of God, which led me into natural theology, and then that led me sort of in turn to epistemology and um so, yeah, that's how my academic career was born, and it just sort of has gradually evolved in ways that I surely didn't expect So I'm doing currently what I'm doing now. Okay, good to have you on board. Dr. Foreman, what's your story? Oh, not too much than Jamie's. Um, I didn't leave the rebellious life maybe that he, he led. I was raised in a religious home, a Roman Catholic home, as a, as a child throughout my life here. Uh, it was my freshman year of college when I went off to college that somebody confronted me basically to claim Christ. I never really understood the gospel in my own training, my own raising here, and they explained it to me pretty clearly there, and it seemed to just simply make sense to me. And so I became a Christian uh, uh, my first year of college, um, and I was one of those guys who, when he became a Christian, immediately went out and wanted to share it with everybody I knew, all my old friends from growing up and things like that, and the minute I started sharing it, I started getting all sorts of questions that I couldn't answer. You know, how do you know this is true? How do you know Jesus is the only way? How do you know the Bible is true? How do you know the God Jesus rose from the dead? And those kinds of questions, and I remember when I got confronted with those, thinking to myself, I, don't, I didn't know the answers, 
And I didn't like that idea that I didn't know the answers, that I couldn't answer those things. And so I kind of vowed to myself that I wasn't going to get stuck in that position again. And so I started to do my own study right there. At that time, first book I ever read, Christian book I read, was Who Moved to the Stone by Frank Morrison, mm. to be able to start answering some of the questions about the evidences concerning the resurrection of Jesus and the truth of Christianity. So apologetics has always been a part of my Christian life, a part of my Christian upbringing and stuff like that as I went through stuff. Uh, that didn't mean that was the career I was going to go into. I finished my college degree, which was actually in music. I was a, a choral conducting major. I went to Westminster Choir College in Princeton, New Jersey. And I was going to go into music. I was going to teach music in high school, direct high school choirs, that kind of stuff was what I was originally going to do. Uh, but um, I got involved in Staff of Crusade for Christ and went out and thought about going on staff with them. And although I did, never actually went on staff with them, I lived out in California for a while there. And that was where I met the woman that I married, my wife, out there. And, and at that time, was thinking maybe going into Christian counseling. So I joined a Christian counseling ministry that actually was based in Oklahoma City lived there for a couple of years and decided if I really wanted to do this Christian counseling thing right, I should go to seminary. And when I went to seminary, that's why I bumped into Dr. Norman Geisler, who was at that time teaching apologetics at Dallas Theological Seminary, and that kind of stirred my interest back into apologetics. So after I graduated seminary, I got a job teaching at a Christian high school. I left Christian counseling altogether, started teaching, teaching at Christian high school, and taught Christian apologetics and philosophy at the high school level. I knew I needed to wanted to do more and get more training and stuff like that. So I came to Liberty University originally with the idea of being a student there and going through their, at that time, what they called their Master of Arts in Christian Thought. And uh, while I was there, I met Dr. Habermas. And at that time, J.P. Malone was uh, at uh, Liberty University. Norm Geisler had moved from Dallas Seminary over to Liberty, Liberty University. So I, I worked as his uh, research assistant for a while there when he was there. Um, and uh, after going through their program for a year, they brought me on faculty uh, to teach part-time in their philosophy department while I finished off my program at the uh, University of Virginia. So I came on faculty finally full-time the next year, um, finished up my MA and PhD at University of Virginia, actually in religious studies with an emphasis in biomedical ethics, because that was the area that was best to be going at that time where there was a real need for it. And I uh, started to teach at Liberty University. So I taught biomedical ethics, philosophy, and apologetics at Liberty University for now for about 25 years. And, uh, but apologetics is really still where my first love is, but I grew up a Christian where my first love was. And this was the area where I certainly enjoy the most uh, talking to people and reaching out to people and, and, and those kinds of things. So I have a great time here at Liberty. I have uh, three kids, uh, three adult girls, and four grandchildren. And I've had a wonderful career here. I, I, I really have uh, clearly have enjoyed it. Well, it's great to have you here also. So now let's talk about this book, How Do We Know? Also, how did this come about? How did you two get together and say, hey, let's write a book together on knowledge? Well, that's a good question. And let me start that one off, and then I'll let Jimmy maybe take over. Um, uh, I, the, uh, as an instructor at Liberty University, I was in charge of our online university philosophy 201 course, which mm-hmm. I've been involved with for really since I've been here, for about 25 years. I just recently have kind of left that because I've gotten involved in other things. But... But I was redesigning the course maybe about eight, ten years ago, and uh, we decided to design the course around InterVarsity Press's collection of a books called Contours of Philosophy, a series of books that they have, which is a very good series of books. And um, and they uh, we liked all their books except for two of uh, except for two things. Number one, they didn't have a book that was kind of an introductory book to the whole area of philosophy. So we used another book outside of that series for that for a while while I wrote my book called Preludes to Philosophy. And, uh, and I wasn't real happy with the epistemology text. It's a great text, don't get me wrong. Jay Wood wrote it, and, uh, and he wrote, he's very good, and I really appreciate what he writes in that text. I'm not in any way being critical of the text, 
but it was just at a level that we thought was a little bit too challenging for an introduction to philosophy students. So we were at an Evangelical Philosophical Society meeting a few years back, and Jamie came up, and he was one of my adjunct professors, and he's also one of our, our um, mentors uh, who trains uh, other people in the uh, online program. And he approached me, and we were, we were friends at that time, and he said, hey, I got an idea for writing in a, in a, new, a new book, an epistemology book, for that course. He says, what do you think about that? And I said, well, that'd be great. Uh, you know, I think we need something to replace Jay with book. And so he said, well, look, I'd like you to write it along with me. And, and I'll be very frank here. I told Jamie, well, God, you, Jamie, number one, this is not my major area. And number two, I'm, I'm still in the process of kind of writing my book. And he said, well, he says, I'll tell you what, I'll do both of the both of the work, which Jamie has done. I want to make it clear here. Jamie really has done the best of the win here. And you kind of just step in and make some, you know, read some things, some things add some things and stuff like that. And so that's really how the book became written, and, and so it really is Jamie's baby. And he, I think he's done a tremendous job. I, I think it's a great book. It's gotten very good comments from students who have, have used it and, and, and up here at Liberty and such. And uh, and such. But uh, but uh, I really have been kind of on the back in the background of this particular book here, just making comments here and there, making some changes in the book, some rewrites a little bit here and there. But uh, but this is really Jamie's uh, Jamie's baby here. So I'm going to let him tell you a little more about the book. Here. So I'll turn this over to you, baby. Okay. Well, yeah, I came on a couple years ago. Well, gosh, I guess at this point it's more like eight years ago uh, with Liberty teaching classes adjunctively online. And just as Mark shared, uh, we really felt like for a long time that the, that the series of books we were using, they were excellent resources. And, and I, too, shared the opinion that Jay Wood's book, uh, Epistemology, Being Intellectually Virtuous, is an outstanding book and resource. It's a wonderful introduction to what I think we would just say virtue epistemology is, because most of the book centers around that. But um, I didn't feel like it was as strong of a general introduction to just the basic issues in epistemology. And we saw that. Mark and I saw this. We, we've been part of conversations prior to that conversation at ETS that Mark mentioned. You know, we, we've been really struggling for, gosh, a good year or two with various things to try to get to do better in this class, uh, especially in epistemology. We've rewritten exams, we've rewritten study guides, we've done all these types of things, and it just wasn't working. And the more I thought about it, I just thought, you know, Wood's book is a good introduction to virtue epistemology, but not just general epistemology. And what we really need is a book written for freshmen in college or people with absolutely no background whatsoever in philosophy that introduces them to the basic issues in epistemology. And so that's when I approached uh, Mark. And I definitely, uh, you know, yeah, I was willing to do a lot of the writing, but I definitely wanted to have someone like Mark involved in the project for a variety of reasons, just to begin with, just to have an older philosopher, someone that um, I respect and look up to and trust, um, you know, involved in it with me, discussing it with me looking over my shoulder, you know, adding things in, doing various things. And so that was a, I just felt like it was an ideal partnership going into the book. And um, so it took a little longer to write than we thought it would, um, you know, and then there were some some revisions that we wanted to make after we got some, some blind reviews. Uh, we had uh, a couple reviews. One was very positive. One uh, seemed to be a little more negative at first, but then when I dived into the critiques, I found actually his critiques were the most helpful of all of them. They were just very uh, fair uh, comments that really I was able to take and reshape some things and rework some things, change some wording here and there that I think in the end made the book a lot stronger. Because our goal, uh, 
like I said, was really just to write a book for people with no background in philosophy. Philosophy itself is hard enough. Epistemology seems to be even more difficult for students. But, you know, I'm, I've just always thought in any topic, if, um, if, we, if we're careful, we can write in a way that people can understand. And so that was, that was the goal. We wanted to write a book like that. And so I was thrilled to partner with Mark on this, and I think in the end it, it turned out great. Okay. okay, let's uh, get to this book a little bit more content now. When we mention epistemology, what exactly are we talking about? What does that word even mean? Yeah, epistemology is the, well, I think the easiest way to talk about it is the study of our knowledge. So we're asking questions in epistemology um, that revolve around issues in knowledge. So we would say, for example, what does it mean to know? And there's and really, one of the things we did in the book is we tried to we tried to write the chapter titles um, in a way that were very easy to understand what we're getting at. So the chapter titles really kind of tell you the essence of what epistemology is. It's questions about what knowledge is. We all know things. We know lots and lots of things. But when we're pressed to down to it of well, what is it to know exactly? Well, we that's kind of a fuzzy thing. We need to think that through. So we, we need to know what that is. And that's very much an epistemic type of question. What is it to know? What is mm -hmm. truth? Can we have certainty? Mm -hmm. Should we be skeptical of everything? How do inferences work? Do we have to have justification for our belief? Mm -hmm. Has God spoken to us and given us some knowledge? All of these are the types of questions that we would deal with if we were dealing with epistemology. So I like to think of epistemology just as simply being the study of our knowledge. Anything you want to add to that, Dr. Foreman? No, Jamie covered it very well there. Uh, yeah, it's just simply asking questions about, you know, what is involved in, in saying we know things. You know, we make knowledge claims all the time about all kinds of things. Some very simple stuff like, you know, I know that Christopher Columbus discovered America or, or I know that 2 plus 2 equals 4. You know, it's a very, very big things like I know that God exists or I know that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Well, what does it mean to say I know something? What's involved in that? What's the difference between believing something and knowing something? I mm -hmm. mean, there's something that has to be said for that. You know, um, how much proof do I have to have before I can say I know? Those kinds of questions are very important philosophical questions. And James Rudd, uh, the, um, the area of epistemology can be pretty deep letters. Uh, mm -hmm. It's pretty challenging to get into when you get into the literature. And the purpose of our book was to write something that would be acceptable, something that the student who's never really kind of thought through these questions before could pick up, and it would basically introduce them to that. Of course, this is just a, the first step. If you really wanted to go further into this, there's lots of other deeper books you could get and lots of places you could go here. But this will get them into the water somewhat and get them to see what the different ideas that are out there and what different people have said about these questions. Okay, well, we know what it is. So now comes the second question that we can ask about that. Why should we care? <laughs> Yeah, um, I'll take maybe first crack at it, and then if Mark wants to uh, add more in, that's, that's great. Um, I think we should care for a variety of different reasons. Just to begin with, mm -hmm. we are by our very nature as human beings the kinds of beings that want to know. Uh, we want to know about all kinds of things. And one of the things that we mentioned in the, in the book, I believe in the first or second chapter, is, um, you know, as children, we come out of the womb. As soon as we're able to talk and process and think and interact with people, mm -hmm. uh, children just immediately begin asking questions. And maybe they're not asking questions about their knowledge itself or knowledge per se, but they are asking questions because they don't know and they want to know. 
so they ask why things are the way that they are. Why is the sky blue and why do we have to wear shoes and all kinds of what to adults seem like random questions, but they're really not when you do think about the fact that these children, well, they don't know. They're just learning these things. Yeah. So, you know, we know from the very beginning of our lives, we are very inquisitive types of creatures that want to know these types of things. And it's not long, therefore, that as we're asking questions about things, that those questions will turn to the questions of knowledge itself. Well, how do I know this? How do I know that you're telling me the truth? How do I know that my senses are giving me accurate, reliable information around the world? I mean, it looks to me like the sun is shining, but how do I know that you know, there's not just some, some dude out there with a big bright light or something? How do I know that my cognitive process, processes are working properly? Um, you know, these are all, there are all kinds of questions there that just by nature of being a human being that we're going to know the answer to. Mm -hmm. I think also um, we should want to know these kinds of answers for um, theological or for apologetic reasons. We're trying to interact with people that have, and let's maybe just give them the benefit of the doubt to start with, they have, they have good reasons for being skeptical of things. Maybe they've been hurt or maybe they've been abused or maybe they have um, been lied to by religious people before, and mm -hmm. so when they hear us preach our message or proclaim the gospel, they're immediately skeptical, and we, we have to be ready to deal with that. So in many ways, I think epistemology is just an outflow of apologetics itself. Um, so those are some basic reasons I think that we could, we would want to be very interested in this kind of, kind of discipline. Yeah, and I, I agree with Jamie, and I can just amen much of, much of what he said there. We do live in an age in which skepticism has become a very dominant view, not just skepticism when we bump into just an apologetics, but it's almost everywhere now. When you look at uh, how much postmodernism, for example, has uh, uh, become to be part of our society and such, where, where now we're just skeptical of any kind of knowledge claim at all, where people are saying, well, there is no such thing as actual objective knowledge now. It's all, it's all 100% subjective, and, and, and you know, we can't really claim to almost know anything anymore. But certainly the area of apologetics, the area of our Christian beliefs, is a major area for us as Christians. I mean, we want to claim that we, in fact, know some Christian things are true, like that Jesus Christ existed, or that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, or that there is God that exists and such. What does it mean to say that I know that stuff, you know? Um, of course, you have two extreme positions. One position is that, well, I know it 100% for certain, that it's proved beyond a shadow of doubt that there's, you know, that you got that, and then you got the other idea, which is, well, I can't know anything at all, and complete skepticism. Well, in order to be able to find a place somewhere in there, either one of the extremes or somewhere in the middle, you got to know a little bit about that knowledge. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's one reason why it's important as well. Now, this book is, you both come from a Christian perspective in this, but do you think non-Christians could learn epistemology very well from reading this? You know, I, I think that, um, I, I certainly think there's at least one chapter in the book that, that a non-Christian who has uh, a bias against Christianity would, would take exception with. Our chapter on Revelation, I, I suspect that a non-Christian skeptic would be uh, uh, not in agreement with us. But that's okay. Uh, that's, what the, that's what this kind of discipline is all about. It's all about us interacting with each other and engaging each other, so I can live with that. I think, though, for the most part... Um, most of the chapters, though, really aren't trying to establish anything specifically Christian. I, we, we will use different kinds of Christian examples of things because most of our readers are going to be Christian. But for the most part, we weren't really trying to do anything 
um, throughout most of the chapters that was uniquely Christian. We were just trying to introduce our readers to the basic questions. And granted, most of our readers are going to be Christians. And so we want our, we want our Christian audience to be informed. Um, but really most of what we're doing in, in the book is just going through the basics. Yeah, the book was written to, for, for Christians. There's no doubt about that. But, but it's not a book in Christian epistemology. It would be wrong to characterize it that way. It's a book in epistemology. Most of the stuff you read in our book, you would find in any book on epistemology, at least we're very basic, of course, but you're going to find any of the same kinds of questions being addressed and many of the same answers being suggested here. We do extend the question beyond just simply knowledge of the natural world. We do talk about knowledge of the supernatural as well, because as Christians, that's a major aspect for us. But that's certainly not the major part of the book or what we're, the thrust of the book is about. It's not a book on Christian epistemology or Christian apologetics. It can be applied in that area, but it's just simply a book on epistemology. You know, I'm even seeing here, as you're saying this, Dr. I'm wondering, can we even really say there would be such a thing as Christian epistemology? Because I mean, when I'm interacting with so many skeptics, it's, they seem to think I have a totally different way of coming to my worldview and my conclusions than they do. I'm saying, no, uh, and since though I come to most of my conclusions pretty much the same way you do. Yeah, I would say I would say that there's a certain aspect to knowing that we Christians are open to that enhances or expands our understanding of knowledge. Yeah. Um, I don't think it's different from in mm -hmm. the sense that it's a totally different way of approaching things. But for example, we believe in the idea that the Holy Spirit can play a part in our knowing things. Mm -hmm. And so that's very much expanding upon our idea here. Um you know, I think that, um, you know, if you want to take, for example, Alvin Plantinga, the Christian philosopher, talks about the sense of divinus. You know, the idea that we have a sense of the divine within us that can play a part of this. And we as Christians are very open to that idea, you know. Um, so, yeah, there's an expansion of it of that I would put that way. But I wouldn't call it, characterize it as a Christian epistemology in that sense. Just simply saying that we're open to stuff that maybe non-believers are not open to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would totally agree with that. I think I would want to take exception with, um, if what someone means by Christian epistemology, uh, that Christians are prone to just making blind faith leaps, then I would say, no, 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 that's not what we're doing. Um, when it comes to, to how we formulate beliefs and things like that, we're operating, as you said, Nick, in the same way that other people would. However, as Marx, I think, rightly said, the Holy Spirit does play a part in things, and I think we find lots of examples of that biblically. And it's not just biblically. Heck, I can tell you in my own life, when I trusted Christ, there were things that now all of a sudden I was able to start understanding. I, I remember, I remember reading my Bible um, every day prior to getting saved for about four to five months because I was very, very lost and I knew I was lost and I was trying to fix myself as hard as I could and I just could not do it. And I'm sitting there reading a King James Bible and I, it was like reading gibberish. I couldn't understand anything in this thing. And everybody kept telling me that I needed to just go get an NIV and not stop reading the King James. I never did because I didn't want it that bad. I came to Christ and I kept reading that same King James Bible. And it was amazing how all of a sudden, I wasn't understanding everything, but it was, it was as though that book came alive to me. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I, I don't know what else is different other than the fact that now I have the Holy Spirit. And I think I think we find biblically plenty of examples of that. You know, and it, it, it shouldn't surprise us that the Holy Spirit can have that kind of effect on somebody to change their perspective in such a way that they now see things differently. I think the Apostle Paul is an example of that. He goes from persecuting the church 
to, within days, being able to preach, evidently, very good sermons. So, you know, what's different there? The Holy Spirit. And, um, you know, but it doesn't mean that Paul took some blind faith leap. Right. Uh, he responded to the information that was in front of him, and he responded by trusting Christ. But surely the Holy Spirit seems to do something to us there to enable us to maybe see something we didn't see before. Well, yeah. also, I think uh, this takes us to a, a point that I want to make, which is I think Jane would agree, and, and Nick, I know from coming from your ministry, what you write, that you probably agree with this, that one of our, one of our major tasks is to try to dispel the illusion that Christians are fideists, that they just yes. simply believe yes. on the basis of purely blind faith alone, and they have no good mm-hmm. reasons behind what they believe, or they can't do good reasoning, that they just simply believe the Bible because they just believe it or God or something like that. And we're really trying to, as Christian philosophers, that's one of my main missions as a Christian philosopher, is to try to dispel that myth that that's not what Christianity is about. Not historic Orthodox Christianity certainly is not about that. Hmm. Oh, definitely. In fact, that goes to what I was just about to ask. We have the people, for instance, like the New Atheists, like Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris, who insist that faith is believing without evidence. And one of the latest ones is Peter Bogosian, who says, Faith is a faulty epistemology. It is believing without evidence or pretending to know things that you don't know. So, are, are these guys right? Is faith believing without evidence, and is faith a faulty epistemology? Well, again, uh, Jamie, I'll give Jamie a chance to answer that, and then I'll respond after him. Okay. You know, if what they mean by faith is a faulty uh, epistemology that faith is a blind leap, then yes, I agree. That's a faulty epistemology. Mm. I don't... Uh, Jamie, you dropped out. I'm sorry, can you hear me now? Yeah. I I was was saying that I I think if they mean by that that faith is a faulty epistemology, if they mean faith is a blind leap of some Mm. kind, then I agree that that's a faulty epistemology. I don't... I don't feel very confident, and I don't think anybody does when they're honest about it. I don't think anybody feels yeah. very confident in their beliefs if that's all that's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, if, however, you know, nor do I think that faith is believing without evidence. Uh, I know that's not what happened with me. I know that's not what happened in the wide variety of people that I run with. Um, we believe these things because we think that this is what the evidence points to. And mm-hmm. so in other words, I believe in God because I think that there really is good evidence for this. I believe that Jesus Christ is the, is the Son of God because there's very strong evidence for this. In fact, in my own life, in those moments when I've struggled with my faith the most, and believe me, I've had my moments. I've had, yeah. you know, I've been a Christian now for 19 years, and there have been at least two seasons of my faith. I've been like a year or two where I just struggled. You know, wondering if this is really true. And what reels me back in, there's two things. One, if I get rid of God, I now can't explain anything, anything at all. And that just seems like everything about this world and universe is an absurdity now. And number two, what do I do with Jesus Christ? I mean, yeah. here's a man who, who says he's going to be killed and raised from the dead, and then by George, he does it. And there's no way of really explaining the evidence there in any other way than saying that he was resurrected. And if that happened, then, you know, I, as a pastor, I used to always tell my church, folks, if that happened, then you do what you want to do, but I'm going to listen to what that man has to say, because I think that he actually is the Son of God. So, from, you know, for me, and I, I dare say for all of the history of the church, 
the churches believe these things because they think this is what the evidence points to. Dr. Foreman? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No, but I was Knowing what's true out there and trying to find out if it's really true, not just simply what are we going to believe. 
you know, that's one reason why when I'm in sovereignty base, I try to take a Joe Friday approach and say, just for facts. Like, you can talk about my motives, why you think I'm doing this all you want. I'd rather just talk about the facts. So how about we talk about the data, okay? That's good. That's a great approach. And we we can also say that we believe by evidence. It doesn't mean the evidence is perfect. It doesn't mean we're necessarily interpreting the evidence, right? Someone could say, well, I don't think the evidence is sufficient. I think the evidence is faulty. But that's not the same thing as believing with zero evidence. Right. Right. Now, of course, someone else can come along now from this couple of science and say, well, all you guys are talking about, you're just talking about philosophy. Don't you know... Science is the only way you can know anything. If something is not proven by science, why well, it's not true. Well, the, yeah. first problem, the first problem you would say with that, and we all kind of know this, yeah. is that's a self-defeating claim. Mm -hmm. okay? Because that's a philosophical claim about the limits of what science can and cannot do. And whenever you talk about the limits of what something can and cannot do, guess what? You're talking like a philosopher. Okay? You're not within, you're not talking science, you cannot scientifically tell me what the limits of science are. You can only tell me that philosophically. Whenever you define something, i.e. give the necessary sufficient conditions of what that thing is, any field or anything, you step into the role of philosophy here. So there's really a self-defeating aspect to the claim that science is the only thing that can give me knowledge. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it sounds, uh, you know, there's a, a famous way of talking about this, referred to as scientism. Scientism is the idea that science holds all the keys, answers all the questions, will fix all the problems. And that's a hard position to hold these days because, in fact, science hasn't done that. It hasn't answered all the questions and solved all the problems. In fact, it's created the itself. Now, I'm not suggesting we need, that science is a big, fat loser or anything else like that. We obviously live in a day where we're doing a radio interview right now from three different geographical locations, mm -hmm. and we're all on our computers, and... You know, none of this would be possible right now without science. So science has been extremely successful, and therefore it, it's worthy of a very high level of respect. But the fact of the matter of it is it doesn't yield some kind of absolute certainty, which it pretends to. Um, and I think, therefore, we have to be careful that Mark's rightly pointed out they're making philosophical claims at that point, not scientific claims. Yeah, in fact, instead of recently that Neil deGrasse Tyson, who's now hosting a Cosmos series, continuing the work of Carl Sagan's and saying that he <clears throat> the arguing that undergraduates should avoid studying philosophy at all because if asked too many questions and asking too many questions can really mess you up. <laughs> Indeed it can. Uh, yeah, well, I don't deny that that's certainly possible. It certainly can. But it's not exactly like studying science is not going to mess you up. Mm. Yeah. Um, that can mess anything can mess you up if it's abused, you know. Yeah. So I don't think that I don't think that applies just simply philosophy. Mm -hmm. um, look, I agree with Jamie. I mean, uh, the big thing we want to say is certainly science is an important field. It has yielded tremendous benefits to mankind. I would be the first to say that people should study it, that we need it, that it's helped us in many many ways, that it does answer a lot of questions for us, and it continues to. And I think that's great. My wife is a scientist. She's a medical technologist. She works in the science field all the time. She was a science major. Certainly, I recognize the benefits of that. But to sit there and say any one field answers all the questions is just simply to almost be silly, okay? We, the reason we have all these different fields is because we recognize 
different kinds of questions, and they have to be answered different kinds of ways and approached different ways in some way or another. I will say this, and being a philosopher, of course you would expect me to hear, to hear this from a philosopher, I think philosophy in many ways is for, as a much more basic or foundational field of science because really everything eventually, I think, flows to philosophical questions. Why, why study this? Why is this important? Um, mm-hmm. What is this about? Why are we, what are we trying to understand here? The minute you start critically examining anything by looking at it and analyzing it and evaluating it, determining if it's true, do we have good reasons to know it's true, you're doing philosophy in every field eventually bottoms up in those kinds of questions. So I, not to me, it's not science that's the foundational field, it's philosophy the foundational field. But I certainly don't want to undermine or undervalue science. Golly, no, I think science is wonderful. We need to have that. But I don't think that's where all the answers are going to be. Yeah, the logical positivists like to, and from that point on, really with the, the turn of the 20th century, it was widely thought that everything having to do with metaphysics, and theology especially, but everything having to do with metaphysics should just go away, and that that was over, and that science was now going to be the predominant discipline. Uh, and everybody hailed the defeat of metaphysics, the rise of science, and now, frankly, what's happened is is that with the progress we've made in science, it's led to a reemergence of metaphysics. You you can't do any of this stuff now without talking metaphysics and doing these things. So um, all these questions are still on the table very much, and everybody has a voice here. So I'm guessing you all don't agree with Stephen Hawking when he said philosophy is dead. Well, at the start of the grand design. No, well, again, I, I just thought that was a very philosophical thing for him to say. Yeah, I, I couldn't help but laugh when I read that one. Uh, that's uh, about hard scientism. What about a weak scientism that says, okay, we can't know everything, but if you really want to know something, the best way you know anything is through science. Science is the best way to learn truth. Well, I suppose that, you know, scientism itself, um, again, this idea that we have, that science answers all the questions. Um, I, I don't know. I think that uh, uh, it all depends on what we mean by best here. Mm-hmm. You know, it's clear that science accomplishes a lot with the method of induction and abduction, and there are things that we we don't know with an absolute certainty and probability. And so, I think that there always has to be in the scientist's mind and in the scientist's claims uh, a dose of humility. Um, a, a, a real healthy understanding that they don't have co- cognitive closure and certainty on what they're saying because it's always possible that the next experiment is going to show the, their theory wrong, even if it's been tested a million times. Mm-hmm. So there's never that kind of closure and certainty. At the same time, the inductive method has been highly successful. We have been able to do a lot of things. And so it, it just depends on what methodology you're looking at. Um, do they mean by best do they mean that they've gotten the most certainty? That certainly cannot be a justifiable claim. If they mean best in the sense that they are able to make progress, well, sure, they do make lots of progress. But they're only dealing with one realm of our existence, the physical, and there's lots of other questions that still remain. So either way, I don't think that even a soft version of this is going to really be a very uh, attractive position to hold. You know, that question, too, Nick, goes to the very heart of, of our topic of epistemology. You know, because you're saying the best way to know everything. I'm very leery of such universal, absolute statements about the best way to know everything. First of all, when somebody makes it to me, I'm wondering, well, how do you know that's the best way to know everything? I don't think you know everything. 
So therefore, I don't think you can tell me the best way to know everything at all. And uh, the point is, there's lots of different kinds of things to know, lots of different kinds of knowledge to have about things. And I don't know if we can point to one way as being the best way to know everything. You know, scientists, philosophers, they've all been looking for this theory that kind of unifies everything together. One theory or one thing that unifies it. I'm not so sure we're going to find that. I mean, maybe, but I just don't know. I mean, I'm certainly not going to be arrogant enough to be able to claim that I know the best way to know everything about anything. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm going to be a little bit, I'm going to be a little bit more epistemically humble at that point. Sure. And say, you know, I know some good ways to know some things that I can share with you from my experience and my knowledge, but I'm not going to step back and say I have universal claim about any of this kind of stuff. Right. I, I would add to that, you know, as you mentioned, Nick, my, uh, I did my PhD at Southeastern in Theological Studies, and I wrote a critique of Alistair McGrath's scientific theology. And, you know, McGrath is an interesting bird because he comes, first of all, with a PhD in something like molecular biophysics, and then mm -hmm. he has also his Doctorate of Divinity from Oxford in theology. So he's duly credentialed in theology and modern sciences, the hard sciences. And one of the things he's doing in the scientific theology is he's developing a way of gaining knowledge that really is getting after a unified theory of knowledge. What he means by that is he's simply saying we're not going to have these, this bifurcation where you've got your religious truth over here on one hand and your scientific truth, and they say opposite things or they don't relate to each other, and you've got your two spheres of, of, of truth claims that are competing. He wants to get away from that. He wants to have one set of claims that are consistent and coherent with each other, and we work together. So it's bringing the science and the theology in together. At the same time, though, he says you have to have different stratuses or, or, or stacks or stratification of our knowledge because each of the fields of – just take science. Each of the fields of science uses a different set of methods and techniques at, at getting at the knowledge. So, for example – Biologists don't use the same methods that chemists use, and chemists don't use the same methods that physicists use. Even though you can keep on going down the chain, and you get down to physics and down at the bottom, but what he's saying is you can't reduce it all just to physics. So there's not going to be one methodology per se. Each discipline is going to have its own methods unique to that discipline for studying it. And so really what he's getting at here is that the, the methodology that you use for studying something depends on the nature of the object. So, for example, we don't study apples in the same way we, we study relationships. We don't study relationships in the same way we study people groups and things like that because they're their own unique groups. They're their own mm -hmm. unique entities, and each entity requires its own unique methodology for studying it. So... To the, the claim, whether hard or soft, from the scientists uh, or the scientism group, that ultimately science is going to answer all the questions is just seems to be very naively blind to the, the fact that our world and our existence in this universe is stratified in a number of different ways that require a number of different methods of exploration. Well, you all have been talking about knowledge. Let's get into this a little bit more and answer the question. When we say knowledge, what exactly do we mean? Well, the classic definition of knowledge that came basically from Plato is that knowledge is what we just call the tripartite definition, is that knowledge is justified true belief. Now, just to break that down real quickly, okay, it basically means, first of all, I believe something is true. 
obviously you wouldn't say that you know something if you didn't believe it. It would be kind of silly for you to say, well, I know that Christopher Columbus discovered America, but I don't believe that. Mm. Okay, well, then we say, well, then I don't think you know it if you don't believe it. So you have to believe it, first of all. Second of all, it has to really be true, okay? If you believe something and it's not really true, then we say you probably don't know it. For example, if I would say to you, well, I, I believe that my wife is right now is, is working at the hospital, and, and uh, I know that, and then it finds out, we find out, well, no, she wasn't, then we sit there and say, well, I don't think you knew it if she wasn't really there. So it has to be true. So it has to be, you have to believe it, and it has to really be true. The third part of it is the idea that you have to have some reason for believing that it's true. In other words, just to make a guess is not knowledge. You know, I can sit there and say, for example, I think my wife is working at the hospital, and I'm just guessing. And it just so happens she turns out that it is. But if I don't have a good reason behind that, we wouldn't say that I really knew it. I just kind of guessed and actually got it true. So the definition of knowledge is traditionally given is that I, something, I, I believe something to be true, it really is true, and I've got good reasons to believe it. So we call that knowledge. Okay. Now, that definition hasn't gone unchallenged. There's a lot of challenges that have been presented against it. Okay. Probably the most famous something being called the Gettier problem. Yes. Okay. But I think in general, it's at least a good starting point for saying what knowledge is, okay? We can expand from there and go from there and talk about different things, but at least that's, that's I think, a good place to start. Jamie, you want to add anything to that? Yeah, I would say, the, you know, the Gittier problem, uh, Gittier is very clear that he's, he's not saying JTB, justified true belief, has no bearing whatsoever on our knowledge, that, it's, it's a, that these aren't valid criteria for knowledge. He's saying that they're not sufficient criteria. So they could still be thought of as necessary criteria. So we could say, for example, well, knowledge is at least this, justified true belief. But the Gettier examples show us and remind us that, well, there are times where those three criteria just don't seem to do everything that we want them to do. So maybe there's something else that we need to add. Um, and, and there's various attempts to try to come up with some other thing that we could add to JTB. I, I tell you, I'm... The, the longer I think about it, the more I think Gettier just reminds us that we have to be humble. It seems to me that Gettier examples, um, that they're a reminder that we don't always have absolute certainty about certain things, that our justifications for certain beliefs, eh, they, could be, they could be wanting, they could be short, they could be, they could be coincidental. And so therefore we have to be very cautious about things. In general, however, it does seem to, to me, that JTB, that is kind of how our knowledge works. Um, Mark knows his wife's at uh, the hospital right now, that he believes it. It turns out it's true that she's there, and he has a reason for it, and it's a good reason. Um, but there's certainly the case that our justification can fall short from time to time, and so therefore all the more reason to be very, very careful. Uh, and it seems to me getting your examples are a problem if we're expecting absolute certainty about things. But if we're not, then... Maybe it's not all that big of a problem. I remember and, I think, and I think, by the way, to just to think about that for a second, I think Jamie is right that we need to be careful that we don't equate knowledge with certainty. Because I think that's what people, at least I think novices who first get into the idea of the question, begin to do. They begin to think, well, if it's possible that I could be wrong, then I can't say that I know. Well, sure. that's not what knowledge is. It's not, knowledge is not saying it's impossible for you to be wrong about something. Knowledge is just simply saying that I have good reasons to believe this. I don't have any reasons not to believe it. There's no what we call defeaters, you know, beliefs out there that would defeat my idea here. So therefore, I think I'm pretty good. I can sit there and say that I know that. I think we need to be real careful about avoiding the idea that knowledge is equal to certainty. Amen. No philosopher holds that position today, 
and and I think that uh, I think that many many people who think that's what it is, I think they need to they need to come to an awareness that that's not what we're talking about. Uh, I remember being in seminary and we talked about the Gettier problem. Some and some one of the in the class asked a question. So did Gettier get tenure? I said yes, he got tenure. <laughs> <laughs> Well, he certainly And by the way, just a little quick comment here. The article that he wrote, which he wrote back in 1963 for that problem, was only about a two-page, maybe three-page article. Yep. He got tenure on the basis of that, and he never wrote another thing. He never published another article in his entire life. Wow. Oh. That's what he's known for, the Gettier problem, and that's it. His whole, all his laurel rests on that. <laughs> so, now... We, let's get in further into subject since the book is called How Do We Know? So let's just ask that question, guys. How do we know? One of the things we try to do in the book is outline the various what we call sources of knowledge, mm-hmm. the various things in our life that inform us. And traditionally speaking, um, there are a handful that seem to be most important, and then maybe several other that we, we should get a little more importance or sting to. Um, to be historic here, the two big ones would be experience and reason. And so you can really, you can look back in the medieval, not the medieval, in the uh, modern period, in the 17th century especially, and you'll start to find the, the empiricists, which are the guys looking at experiences, and then you'll start to look at the rationalists who are looking at reason. But really, you could go back to the ancient world as well, or even maybe the patristic period, and you'll find you'll find ancient thinkers that thought very similar to this. And I don't want to paint um, I don't want to paint uh, an anachronism here and say that you know Plato was a rationalist and that Aristotle was an empiricist because there's certainly some differences there. But in general, that is kind of what they're doing. Plato thought we get knowledge through reason by reasoning carefully, and he thought that because the world around him is constantly changing. The the grass on the field is in the backyard is changing from day to day. Our bodies are changing. And so how well can you know something that's constantly moving or changing? It's like a moving target. But the thing of tree nests or grass nests, uh, those were things that had to be unchanging. And so he wanted to hitch his wagon, so to speak, to that, something that's not changing. Hmm. And so he used reason to do that, whereas Aristotle said, no, 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 no. We need to look at the things down here, the particulars. And so... Uh, Fast forwarding, coming into the, the modern period, you find people like John Locke who say that it's experience. It's not you're you're not born with these ideas already in place. It's a blank slate, and we learn through experiences and senses and things like that. And then you have people like Descartes that said, "Well, gosh, I could doubt all of my senses. So how do I shore up my knowledge?" Um, he wanted to get a firm foundation. So those are the two big ones I think that you'd have to point out. It's interesting, really from Kant afterwards, though, people seem to stop falling very neatly into the categories of empiricist or rationalist. Uh, Kant thought of himself as the empirical rationalist. Um, And so from that point, and really what he's doing there is he's showing how both of these things play into our knowledge, and I think most people tend to agree with that today. Um, I'll just throw out a couple more there real quick, and then Mark wants to add anything else in. other things that we could say are sources of knowledge are memory. Uh, the memory is formed, the thoughts themselves and the idea themselves might be formed out of experience or reason or testimony. Uh, memory is still an important thing that we've got to think about. 
Um, I know right now that I was born November 23rd, 1976, not because I'm experiencing that and not because I'm reasoning to that. I know it because I've been told that again and again throughout my life, and it's on my birth certificate. And right now, sitting here on the back deck of of my uh, in-law's house, I just remember it. Um, Testimony, what other people have told me, is another piece of information. You could argue that that's just a kind of experience. But um, I don't know. It it, it seems significant enough to warrant its own unique category. And then we think, uh, and we think that obviously other Christian philosophers would agree with this as well, we think that there's another big category called revelation. We think that God has revealed himself in in a variety of ways that are important to us. So those are some of the ways that we suggest that we know various things. Yeah, and and, uh, the the important point to bring out, uh, that Jamie's bringing out here, is that there's a a number of different ways that we know. The two primary ways have to be right, empiricism and reason being the two primary ways. And I think where some systems become faulty is where they only say, well, there's only one way to know. And that's taking us back to our discussion on scientism, for example, will tell you what the only way to know is through empiricism. That's the only way we can know something is only if we can see it or in some way other phenomenologically, you know, experience it in some way with our senses. That's the only thing where we can know things, of course. As we recognize already, the problem with that is that that claim that the only way we can know things is empiricism, that claim can't be made through empiricism. I know it's I don't know that that claim is true because I see something. I, I know that claim is true, or I think that it's true, because I reasoned it out. Okay, so, so the point is that I think what we find fault, or what we run into, what a person can run into on making mistakes or fallacies, is that they start to claim that there's only one way that, that you can know something. I think you need multiple sources out there. Yeah, I think it's also important for us to stress that there are people on each side of this you are Christians. Locke was, identified himself as a Christian, for instance, and he was an empiricist. Descartes identified himself as a Christian. He was a rationalist. Augustine was more of a rationalist. Aquinas was more of an empiricist. So there wasn't just one way of Christians knowing. They, they each have these views in themselves, and they can debate amongst themselves which system they think is best. Right. There's no one Christian view here. Mm-hmm. Right. Now, also, we could say that there are, that even the empiricists that have been Christian realize there are some things you can know by reason alone, but some things you don't know except by revelation. For instance, going with Aquinas, he would have argued you can know that God does exist by reason alone, without any revelation, but you couldn't know, for instance, that God exists as a trinity without revelation. Do you all think that's right? I would be a little bit careful how you say that. I don't think Aquinas would say that you can know by reason alone, you know, it, you know, apart from our, for example, our ability to see. For example, yeah. Aquinas would appeal to a cosmological argument because oh, yeah. like, it's the world out here, I need a cause for the world. So I want to be careful there. On some produced an argument in which he thought I could produce to prove that God exists on the basis of reason alone. That's become known as the well-known ontological argument, mm-hmm. which is purely a priori and doesn't depend upon any sense experience. You know, just purely the idea of God. But uh, but Aquinas would certainly appeal to certain things, certain effects that we see in the universe as as reasons to believe that God exists there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you are right. Aquinas was very big about the idea that we need revelation to know some things about God. Knowing that he exists, maybe I don't need revelation, or the special revelation to know that. But, but knowing that there's a trinity, knowing things about God's grace, 
things like that, I need revelation to tell me that. Mm -hmm. Dr. Dave, anything you'd like to add to that? No. Well said. Amen. Yeah, and I'm also thinking along those lines that historically, for instance, I can know Jesus died a death by crucifixion. But even if I knew he rose from the dead historically, I'd still need revelation from God to know why this happened the way it did. And say, oh, he did that to redeem the world and to defeat evil and to rescue me from my sins. Oh, okay. But if I was just looking at purely historically, I don't think I'd be able to get that conclusion. Yeah, I, I would add, in light of what you just said, I'm a big fan and a big proponent of natural theology. Yep. I know, you know, historically speaking, there were the philosophical attacks of David Hume and Immanuel Kant, and then there was the scientific attacks of Darwin, and then the theological attacks in the 20th century um, from Karl Barth, who saw himself speaking on behalf of the Reformed tradition in so doing. Um, and yet it's made a resurgence, and I think mm -hmm. rightly so. Mm -hmm. um, God seems to have revealed himself in a variety of ways, and the great thinkers of the past, uh, you mentioned Aquinas. Aquinas definitely thinks that God has revealed himself, and I love that quote that you were referring to. You know, Aquinas says, you could know that someone is walking, it's analogous to saying that someone is walking down the hall, but you'd never know that it's Peter walking down the hall. So you can know that something's out there, you can know that somebody's out there, but you're never going to get the specifics of the Christian tradition from natural theology. We need much more than that. So even though I'm a big advocate of natural theology, it has to be, um, it has to be a modest natural theology. We can't, we can't go crazy here and think that we're going to prove very specific things about our God from these things. Um, we'll still need scripture. We'll still need the, reveal, the, the special revelation, if you will, to know those types of things. Again, I, I agree completely with that. Well, for all the folks who are listening right now, I've got a Dr. Jamie Dew right here and Dr. Mark Foreman together. We're talking about their book, How Do We Know? The God, the Epistemology from a Christian Perspective. But next week, we're going to have with us Dr. Braxton Hunter. Now, he's a former president of the Conference of Southern Baptist Evangelists. He's a professor of apologetics at Trinity College of the Bible and Theological Seminary in Newburgh, Indiana. He's a passionate about he's passionate about the defense of the Christian faith in a skeptical world. He's written a book, Core Facts, demonstrating that Christianity is true with core facts. So he's going to be my guest next week. We're going to be talking about this book. But for now, we've got Dr. Dew and Dr. Foreman here, and we're talking about the book, How Do We Know? An Introduction to Knowledge. Now, let's talk about another aspect that gets into many, many debates today. Morality. How do we know something is good? How do we know something is evil? How do we even know that moral absolutism is true to begin with? Well, wow, that is a big topic. <laughs> it's like... Um... Uh, I'm not sure even where we're going to approach that on how do we know. Um, I certainly think there's a, there's a number of different moral theories out there. Let's, let's kind of maybe start from that perspective. There's a different, different ideas of moral theories of how do we determine right and wrong. But, if, but instead of another question, maybe one above that, is there a right and wrong? You know, are there objective values and duties? I think the first thing that I would, that I would appeal to is just simply our own moral experience. You know, when I see something 
happen out there. For example, a, a child, let's say an innocent child being tortured, you know, you know, by somebody. You know, it just seems like I've, I've got this moral repulsion to it, but I can't deny that that is really wrong. And it's certainly not just simply my, I don't want to say that it's just my, simply my opinion that it's wrong. I don't think any of us would want to say that, you know, because if it's just my opinion, well, then there's nothing really wrong with that, and the person can go ahead and torture the child. So I think in some ways we just simply appeal to our, just our moral intuition, our, our moral experience that we go through ourselves on whether or not there are objective values of duty. The question of determining what makes something to be right or wrong is, is another question, okay? And there's a number of different theories that are out there that have been suggested on that. I happen to be a natural law person myself. I tend to take more of that approach to that particular perspective, but, but there are a number of different ways to do that. So let me see if uh, Dr. June can maybe approach that question a little bit too. Yeah, it's interesting. Mark and I, so we, we work together on all of these questions in the book, um, and this isn't one that he and I have ever actually uh, had the chance to about around. So in many ways, we're sort of thinking out loud together right here, but um, so far, so good. I mean, I totally agree that the first question he's asked is the one we need to start with. Is there such a thing as right and wrong? And I, I do think that we can argue persuasively here, um, and even conclusively, that there is such a thing as right and wrong. Mm -hmm. um, the one thing I would probably say that I would want to personally be very careful on I would probably be very careful on trying to identify particular ones, though I do think that the one he's just mentioned here is a good one that we could start with. Mm -hmm. The reason I say that is because historically speaking, moral arguments for God's existence tend to focus on what, or they tended to be what I call morally specific arguments. In other words, they would identify a particular command and say everybody everywhere always agrees with these types of commands. And then modern anthropology showed that, well, actually there are people groups around the world that don't see this particular command as a bad thing. And then all of a sudden those arguments are in jeopardy. So I'm always a little, little hesitant to hitch the argument or hitch the wagon to specific commands. I would just hitch it more generally to our sense as human beings uh, of oughtness. We all feel as though there's something we ought to be doing. There's all, we all feel as though there's some specific thing we ought not be doing. We may disagree over what that thing is, but that's an epistemological problem, not an ontological problem. Mm -hmm. Meaning we're not, we're not confused over whether or not there is something right or wrong. We're confused over what that thing is. And, and the reason I call that an epistemic issue is because now we're just having difficulty figuring out what it is, which that has to do with our knowledge. We're not confused over the fact that there is something there out there. So I think we can argue very powerfully that there really is a right and a wrong. And I do think, as Marcus said, that's where we want to start off at. Right there, we, we can identify the fact that there are some things we're supposed to be doing and not be doing. We may have debate over what those are. Um, but I think we'll, we, we can be very successful there as we engage people on that point. Um, in terms of other theories, um, I, too, I come more out of a natural theology perspective, and even though I think natural theology and natural law are sort of uh, best friend cousins, so to speak, um, I'm not as familiar and read up on the natural law side of things. Um, I have spent a lot of time over the last few years looking at alternative moral theories. Um, so, for example, we have our Christian explanation of where this morality comes from, but really from the Enlightenment forward, you know, the non-believing philosophers recognized that if we're going to get rid of the Christian God, 
we need to hang on to the Christian ethic. And there are some exceptions to that. Of course, Nietzsche is one example of that, who said, yeah. well, if you get rid of the Christian God, we just get rid of their ethics, too. And John Paul Sartre earlier on would have said the same type of thing. But most of these philosophers, and even today, people like Richard Dawkins, they want to get rid of our God, but they want to keep our ethics. And, uh, you know, that's a very hard thing for them to do. Now, they, they've tried it in a variety of ways. You have utilitarian approaches. You have Darwinian approaches. You have Freudian pr- approaches. Um, and I think, I think all of them have uh, a varying degree of plausibility. Some of them, I don't see much plausibility in them at all. Some of them I say, well, that, maybe that's a little harder for me to critique as a Christian. But even there, I think that we've got a stronger case that we can make, that the, the God of Christianity is just a better explanation for the, the sense of morality that we have than is Freudianism or Darwinism or something like that. You know, when you talk about the moral arguments, since you brought that up, what I actually tend to do in my project approach is I tend to move more towards Aquinas' fourth way and say, that's not about the existence of morality, it's about the existence of goodness. Mm. And say, morality is kind of a subset of goodness. And then say, is there anything that's good out there at all? Anything even worth doing whatsoever? Mm. That's good. Mm-hmm. That's good. So there you're sort of framing it more positively. Instead of a command of something we're not supposed to do, you're finding something that we just would all agree we should do this. Mm-hmm. Now, I even just that, that we should do this, that, that there was something up about, you know, we can take the Nicomachean ethics approach and say that the good is that which is desired and say, well, if there's anything out there that we desire whatsoever, we all at least think there is something that is good because we all desire something. Even the Buddhists desire something. I think a lot of times this, the moral argument is going to fall back on the idea of is there such a thing as value? Yeah. Um, and, of course, the, the, the idea of naturalism, the idea that all that exists is just simply this universe, matter, and energy, and that's it, eventually going to end up with a valueless universe. Not that it just simply is no value whatsoever. And so when we start to say, well, there's such a thing as good, then we're going to say, well, then that means there's such a thing as value. Now, that value is either going to be objective, meaning it's really out there, or that value is going to be subjective, meaning we're just simply imposing it on what's out there. There is no real actual value out there. And there are those who are going to want to argue for the subjective side of that. They're going to say, well, it's just subjective. We're just imposing value. Okay? But I don't think ultimately that will stand. I don't think they ultimately will hold that. You know, I think that, uh, that, that they're going to have a problem with that because when, when something that they value gets challenged, I don't think they're going to just simply say, well, it's just something that I just hold, but it's not really there at all. I think eventually most people are going to want to say, no, I do, I do really believe these things really do in fact have value out there. Okay? I think we are running into a time. I, I think we as Christians need to be aware, especially we Christian philosophers need to be aware, that we are running into a time when anti-realism, the idea that there simply is no value, there is no good, is going to start to become more and more of a view that more and more philosophers are going to, going to propose. They're just going to simply say, look, there is no such thing as good or evil. They simply do not exist at all. Okay? I don't know if, we're going to be able, if they're going to be able to live that way. Yeah. You know, and Nietzsche said, if you can't live according to philosophy, that's a good sign that's probably not right. You know, but, um, but I think we're going to see more and more people arguing that way because they realize the minute we impose value, then that's going to take us to some sort of, you know, some sort of creator type idea in some way. Yeah, I'd like to also go back to something Dr. Dude said earlier about alternate moral theories because right now I'm picturing the atheist listening to you and saying, 
while you're looking at Ultra Morpheus, because we know how Christians know right from wrong, you may just open up your Bibles, whatever the Bible says, where if it says it's right, it's right, if it says it's wrong, it's wrong, and we're just going to force that on everyone else. <laughs> Unfortunately, that's not what we do, though. I mean, goodness gracious, take, for example, the Old Testament laws. Uh, we don't, we, there's a lot of those that we don't feel obliged to live by. You know, we don't, we don't do that type of thing. And, you know, really what we do, um, we spend a lot of time basing it not in a specific Bible verse, uh, that is a particular ethical principle, not in a specific Bible verse, but in more of a doctrine. And we sort of tease out of a doctrine a set of ideas that we should live by. So, um, but to the question of why I might spend my time looking at their alternative theories, um, I'm very interested, as a lot of Christian philosophers and apologists are today, I'm very interested in abductive type of approaches where we're not looking for deductive proofs per se. We're not even trying to exhaust ourselves in a pure inductive way of investigating every conceivable piece of evidence that's out there, but, but rather starting off with the evidence that's there. We have our sense of morality that's there, and then look at the possible explanations that are available to us. And you know, if we're going to do that kind of thing, then we have the Christian God as one explanation of it, or you have the Darwinian process of evolution as an explanation of it, or you have a Freudian explanation of not morality itself, but at least our sense of guilt, why we feel guilty, and um, you know, or the Kantian deontological approach, where we just, you know, there are these fixed commands that are based off of some kind of uh, categorical imperative that we would all feel obliged to, to follow. Um, you know, I want to know which of those explains this best. And here I think that we can make a case that the Christian explanation explains it best. I'm not saying that none of the other ones would have any plausibility to them at all. Right. I'm just saying I think ours has the most... Uh, I, 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 yeah, I think he was right. I think an abductive approach that apply, appeals to a number of different uh, ways of determining morality is the best way to take it. Certainly, I, I, I think those who say, well, Christians just open their Bibles and that's where they get the morality from. Well, first of all, I think that's a caricature. I don't think that's what Christians are actually doing. Mm -hmm. I would say it's wrong to say we don't get some morality from Scripture. Of course we do. You know, there are some moral claims in Scripture, some moral commands in Scripture, and we do often, you know, we often sometimes turn to those and use those as support for the way we as Christians should behave and not behave. I would not want any Christian to think of the Bible as, quote-unquote, a rule book or an ethical rule book. That certainly is not what the scriptures are about, okay, at all. But it would be wrong to go the opposite extreme and say, well, the Bible doesn't contain any morality or we don't get any morality from it at all. But it's one source, okay, that we use. But it's not the only source. Um, well, certainly, as Christians, we would hold that it's maybe uh, a final source of authority, and that particular sense, we, if we believe that it is the inspired, you know, infallible and errant word of God, that we're going to go there. But it's not the only source that I use for determining right or wrong. There's lots mm -hmm. of places I go to to determine that. As a natural law thinker myself, I think that God has placed within me a capacity, an ability to be able to reason out those things that are fruitful and progressive for humans and human behavior that glorify God. And then I can do those kinds of things without necessarily flipping over a flipping up on a Bible passage and looking at that. But there are times that, yeah, I would say I go to Scripture to get basically some, some idea of what God thinks about certain kinds of activities and things like that. That's part of it. Sure, it's one part of it. It's only a part of it. Yeah. 
Uh, I think it's important to stress <clears throat> the natural law aspect, because I find this taught even in scripture, because we have passages such as uh, Romans 2, for instance, and then any condemnation of a Gentile, it comes with this implied assumption, you know better, you don't need scripture to tell you this, because the Gentiles didn't have the scripture coming to them, and, and as I often tell people, it's not as if Moses came down from the mountain with the Ten Commandments, and all of a sudden people said, whoa, uh, we gotta stop doing this murdering thing. Turns out that's not a good thing to do. Right, exactly. I don't, I think again, Scripture backs up much of what natural says. I think the two of them work together. Um, I think Scripture talks a lot more about how we relate to God than necessarily relating to each other. Not saying it doesn't have some of that as well, mm. but um, you know, I think Aquinas kind of had it a little bit right. He basically said that the natural law has a lot to do with how we relate to one another, Scripture has more to do with how we relate to God, okay, mm-hmm. and that kind of aspect of relating with Him. Um, so I see it more that way, but they certainly, certainly correlate well together, but you're right. It's not like Scripture came down, God came down with the Ten Commandments, and all of a sudden, wow, we didn't know that stuff was true. Wow. It's like, no, it was, it's always been that way. Mm-hmm. Dr. D, do you have anything to add to that? No, totally agree. In fact, I'm also thinking about how Jay Brzezewski, I believe in his book, The Line for the Heart, has said that the idea that Christian gives Christianity, the Bible, has more principles in it. It's, it's kind of like having a math teacher give you a math book with a homework you're supposed to do, and some of the answers are in the back to help you, if, but you might have a hard time finding on your own. But if you were really diligent, you could find a lot of those truths on your own, and no doubt there are some truths that are harder to find out than others, some truths that we can still debate back and forth, because not even Christians like ourselves would necessarily agree on every single moral rule that's out there, but there are some that we can be certain on. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, is there any way you think we know these other than intuition, or what would we say, in fact, to someone who says that they're very not sure there are more absolutes? Uh, I think that that person, you know, sounds like I'm trying to be as kind and respectful as I can, but that this strikes me, at least, as an utterly unlivable position. Mm-hmm. Um, surely the person saying that takes offense at something yeah. along the way. Uh, maybe it's the way they, their paper is graded by a professor. Maybe it's the way that a particular political party passes policy and influences government and society. Or maybe it's, um, it's with a group of people that, that says mean and unkind things and disapproving things of their perspective. They take offense at something. And the whole the whole tendency to be offended by anything or bothered by anything or angry at anything all seems to assume that there's a wrong that's been done. And that doesn't make sense unless there's some kind of moral absolute that's been violated or broken. Yeah, I I do think there, and I might add, but I think sometimes we might need to nuance a little bit of what we mean by absolute. You know, sometimes something is so general that it depends upon the particular situation that we're talking about. For example... If somebody says to me, well, is it wrong to take a knife and cut somebody with it? Well, yeah, I, I think it's wrong if you're mugging somebody on the street and you're trying to get money from them and you cut them to injure them in the process. 
but I don't think it's wrong for a surgeon to take a knife and cut somebody with it when they're operating on them. So is cutting somebody an absolute? Well, it depends upon, in that sense, what we mean by an absolute. Mm -hmm. I think it's absolutely wrong to cut somebody to take something from them, to injure them. Yeah, I'm going to say that's going to be an absolute, okay? But I'm not going to say that it's absolutely wrong to cut somebody. So a lot of times you do need to, I think, nuance a little bit of what we're talking about when we're talking about the idea of absolute. The problem here is this. The person who says there are no moral absolutes is himself making an absolute claim, okay? Mm -hmm. But there are no moral absolutes, and it's like my... That's not, that's not a moral absolute claim, it's an epistemological absolute claim. But it's like, it seems to me to make an absolute claim that there are none, you know, is like, I'm not sure you have enough evidence or enough knowledge to be able to make such a claim, you know. I think there may be good reasons to support the idea that there are at least some things that I can't imagine any reason to say that this would ever be right to do. And I use examples like extreme ones like torturing little children for fun, okay. I can't think of any situation where one could justify that as being the right thing to do. I think that we're pretty pretty good about saying that that's a moral absolute. Yeah, I can't help but think of the old joke I was told long ago. I said, if you ever have someone over to your house for dinner who says they don't believe in moral absolutes, when they leave, check your silverware. <laughs> <laughs> well, when I bump into people who say to be things like, for example, all morality is relative, that there's no, there's nothing, nothing right or wrong or something like that, my initial reaction is to want to want to hold off and hit them, you know, because <laughs> I'm going to watch how quickly they change their mind because they're going to think that what I did was wrong, okay? And they're not going to just simply think, well, that's my opinion that it's wrong. They're going to think, no, that it it really was wrong, okay? Yeah. So I mean. Yeah, I mean, when people make those kinds of claims, it's, it's just like they're just they're just too broad. They're not nuanced. They need need more discussion nuances. Yep. All right. Well, we're about an hour and twenty minutes into the show day, and for those who are listening, you're noticing the format's a bit different. I'm not able to take breaks the same way. Don't have the opening music and such, and that's because we're kind of down from the studio, and the reason is we are financially strapped at this point, so we're recording these using Skype and Audacity. So I'd like you all to know what we do here is we, is financially supported by people like you, and we need that support. It's the way we can keep going doing what we do. And if you want to make us a donation to us, I ask you to go to the deeperwaters.wordpress.com page. It's my blog. There's a link on the side where you can donate, and you make a donation then to the Ministry of Risen Jesus, actually the Ministry of Mike Lacona. And he takes donations for us, and you let them know, hey, I want this to be for Nick Peters, I want this to be for Deeper Waters. We will get every penny of that donation, and even better, it will be tax deductible for you. And in fact, we actually have a new ebook that's come out recently, and Dr. Foreman was just telling me a while ago that he's read it, and he thinks it's a very good book, called Defining Inerrancy, which is responding to the charges of people like Geisler and Farnell and others that Mike Lacona and people like him and like Craig Blomberg and others are denying inerrancy and is asking what is inerrancy and how do we go about establishing our view of inerrancy. This one is available on Kindle for four bucks at this point. Some of the proceeds will go to support us and we definitely appreciate it. if you purchase it Please give a review. I'd really appreciate that. And now, do you two have any organizations that you would like to encourage people to support as well? 
Well, well I, I don't want to... Go, go ahead, ahead. You go ahead. Dr. Dew, you go on ahead, okay? Um, I, other than the school I teach at, uh, I teach at Southeastern, and uh, certainly uh, if someone wanted to help out that ministry, we'd be deeply grateful for it. Okay, Dr. Foreman? Uh, actually, Dick, I would just support your ministry, Dr. Lacona's ministry. I'm a supporter of, of, uh, of Mike. I'm a good friend of his. Mm -hmm. And uh, and any, I would urge your, uh, your, your listeners out there, if they're not supporting you, or, or something to support really any ministry out there that's doing the work of apologetics that's out there that's trying to uh, basically uh, spread the gospel that's out there trying to uh, give good reasons for the beliefs that we have as Christians and trying to promote a, a very intellectual academic view of Christianity mm -hmm. any ministry out there that's doing that you know I would think I would advocate that kind of support certainly your ministry is involved in that as well mm -hmm. so, uh, so I would just say support these ministries to because right now the attacks upon Christianity are, are, are pretty vicious, some of the things that are going out there. And we just need to really, I think, support the idea that Christianity is an intellectually viable alternative way to looking at the world that we want to say that people should be looking at and examining there. And so any ministry that does that, I'm in support of that. Thank you very much, Dr. Foreman. And so let's get back into the content of a book here. Now, one aspect we've talked about a lot here is Scripture, because you all have a section that won't be found in most epistemology books, and that's Revelation. So, what role does Revelation play in epistemology? Well, I think in just in, in general epistemology, it might be something that that doesn't come up a lot. Hence, why I don't think a lot of um, a lot of epistemology textbooks deal with it, even those that are written by Christians. Um, I think that when we're dealing with the questions of God, though, we absolutely have to think about this. Uh, one may not may be thrilled with the kinds of answers that we give in the book, or one might feel that they're they're left wanting at the end. Um, that's going to vary from person to person, probably. Right. But our point in the book is simply to say, look, if we're going to if we really want a robust epistemological view of things, we really want to deal with things, and then, then God is a part of reality. We want to know about that too. Therefore, we're going to have to deal with the issue of revelation as well. And so if we're going to have to deal with it, let's just ask the question, well, is there any reason to think that God has, in fact, revealed himself to us or given us a word? And we try to argue in that chapter that, indeed, we think that God has, and we argue for the two classical kinds of revelation that Christians have always stood for, uh, general revelation, which looks at what God has revealed in nature, or sometimes referred to as natural revelation, and then also special revelation, where God has said something very specifically, and he's given it to a very specific group of people, uh, and we think that that's come in two forms, the man Jesus Christ, and then most uh, what, what we have today, uh, the Bible. And so we try to look at that. So if you're talking about big issues like God, and even metaphysics and, and other things, then it seems to me that revelation is going to play a pretty big part in our epistemology. I'm coming to add that uh, James covered that very well. There, um, uh, you know, God, we would not know about God if God did not reveal Himself to us. It's that simple. And so, therefore, to have the knowledge of God, um, He's revealed Himself, but He's done it through the two main means of general revelation, uh, or natural revelation, sometimes referred to, and special revelation. And that's how we know about God. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Alvaro, I can picture a, a skeptic coming and saying, "Well, you all are saying you know about God." the scriptures, but 
the Muslim says he knows about God, the Quran, and when the Mormon knocks on their door and says, we have a burning of bosom about the Book of Mormon and Joseph Smith being a prophet, if you're going to accept the Christian revelation, why not accept the Muslim revelation or the Quranic revelation? Well, that, well that's, a, that's a good question. Certainly, mm -hmm. certainly there are other uh, views out there that believe that they also have a revelation from God. So what do we do? Well, like any claim about anything, you examine the different views, you look and you ask which one best explains the evidence that we have, and you go with that one with the best explanation. And, uh, and I mean, that's not a puzzling question just simply on this issue. That's the same question you get on almost any issue. What do I do when I have competing views? Well, I look at the views, I examine them, uh, I ask which one do I think best explains things the best, and I go with that one that does. Mm -hmm. Explain things better than Christianity does, or does, does Islam explain things better than, uh, you know, is there explanation for their, for their evidence that their revelation is the revelation? Is it have a better explanatory power than the evidence we have that our revelation is the is the revelation? And so that's what I do. I don't throw my hands up in the air and say, "Well, you're right. Golly, everybody's claiming that they have revelation, so I guess we all just ought to give up." I mean, that's that's not what we do as philosophers. We examine the evidence, and so you go after you look at that. I think the evidence for the idea that the Christian concept of revelation, special uh, general revelation, which by the way, Islam would agree on uh, that I, basic idea that it's better revelation, you know, and what is the special revelation? I think the Christians have a better argument, okay, but certainly I'm not going to ignore the arguments of others. I'm going to examine them and explain why I think those arguments are not as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I would add to that. I mean, look, it's, um, it, it's precisely because that question is out there that, that we feel like we have to write a chapter like this and that we have to start thinking about this. I mean, just in my own life, one of the big questions, I, there's really been three apologetic issues or questions that have driven and given birth to my entire academic career. One, does God exist? Two, do we really live after our death? The second PhD I'm working on, I'm, I'm working on that, that type of question. But the other question is, well, how do I know that the Bible really is the word of, word of God? Because precisely what you just said, you have all these different religions, and everybody claims to have a word from God. You've got the Book of Mormon, you've got the Quran, you've got the Bhagavad Gita, and all these other books. And so how do we think that this book, or why do we think that this book is actually different from them, and, and may actually be the word of God? And that was the question behind this chapter for me, and it was you know, something long before we wrote the book. But there seems to me... Um, when we answer that question normally, when that question comes up, say, in Sunday school or in, in, in sermons and things like that, I, frankly, I had never been satisfied with the answers I was given. You know, people might say things, for example, well, the Bible is historically accurate. And I think to myself, well, that's great. I'm glad that it's historically accurate because if it's telling me historically false things, then I'm worried. But the mere fact that it's historically accurate doesn't make it the Word of God. I can think of a lot of books that are historical that aren't the Word of God. Yeah. I think, for example, Alexis de Tocqueville's Democracy in America is a very historically accurate book of what America was like in its early years. But I don't think it's the Word of God. It's a necessary it's, but not a sufficient that's condition. That's right. That's right. And, and so on and so forth with other things. Well, it's been well preserved. Well, great. Once again, mm -hmm. that doesn't make it the Word of God. Now, we need all those things to be true, so I'm not ignoring those. As you write, it is a necessary condition. But what could be our sufficient condition here was really the question here. And to me, as I've wrestled with this for over the years, and there have been a variety of philosophers and apologists that have, that have put something like this out, 
But to me, it's that in standing in the middle of our book is a man named Jesus Christ. And he does something that nobody else ever does. He claims that he's going to die, and he, in fact, dies. He claims that he's going to be raised the third day. In fact, he was raised the third day. This is validated widely um, by the evidence. This evidence is not just in the Bible, though plenty of it does come from that. There's plenty that's extra-biblical as well. Um, and really, as we said earlier in the show, the only conclusion I can really draw is that, that he really did that. And therefore, when he does that, I'm going to listen to him. And so by way of analogy, I'd, I'd say something like this. Imagine that we were all in a room. Say maybe there's 20 of us that are in a room. There's males, there's females, and we've all been in that room all of our life. We've never experienced anything outside that room. There's a concrete floor below us. There's brick walls around us. There's a ceiling above us, and we've never been out of that room. Uh, we've never seen anybody come in the room. Babies are born in the room, but we don't ever get out of the room. And when we, when we die, we take the dead body of somebody who's died, and we just throw them over the wall, I guess. And they never come back. And we have all these theories about what's on the other side. You know, we, we some people say, well, when you go over, the body goes over the other side, it just stops living. Some people say, well, there's there's this place called heaven, and there's all these other things. But we've never actually been over there. And then all of a sudden, somebody comes and is born among us, and he lives with us, and he says that he's going to die and come back. And all of a sudden, he dies, and he goes across that wall, and then he comes back, and he tells us what's there. I would say at that point, if you're in that scenario, you'd be very much inclined to listen to what that man has to say. And it seems to me that Jesus Christ is the, the reason that we believe this book is so special. It's a very Christological reason, um, but it, to me it's a very strong reason for thinking that our book is different from the Book of Mormon. It's, it, what we have in Jesus Christ is better than a burning bosom. What we have in Jesus Christ, and I mean this with all due respect, is better than just some... Sermons of a prophet in, during the 7th century in the Arab world, we have something truly unique here in the Bible because of what Jesus Christ is and what he's done. Yeah, I think it's important. I would just 100% agree with that. I think the whole thing is that it focuses on who Jesus is, what he, who he claimed to be, what he did to substantiate that particular claim. That sets this book apart from all the other books. Yeah, I think it's important also, keep in mind that when you are, we're talking about how you examine these claims, you didn't go and say something like, well, I wait for a light to come down from heaven, so I know that God has revealed us. You use pretty much the same epistemological techniques you'd use for examining most any other historical claim. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. Mm -hmm. Now, I, I would just add this. Um, uh, as a side note, just to shift out of a discussion on religious epistemology to just practical apologetics, this type of discussion we're having very quickly translates into apologetics as we interact with Muslims and Mormons and things like that. Yeah. I would always be an advocate for having an apologetic approach that's highly respectable uh, and respectful of the people we're interacting with. So in other words, even though I think that there are some very fair historical critiques we could make of the book of the, of the Quran as we talk with our Islamic friends, mm -hmm. um, it's my understanding, based off of experience and just others that are experts in this type of thing, that that's not ever really received all that well. So, you know, maybe there's a better way we could talk about it, at least initially. But so, you know, I'd want to be as respectful with them as I can. But I feel very confident pointing people to the man Jesus Christ and saying, look, he is a game changer. What he does here changes everything and gives me confidence in this book. 
you know, if since you mentioned Islam, I could say that for anyone who listened to what I recorded last week was an interview with Abdu Murray, who came out of Islam. So we talked about Islam some and how he switched from Islam to Christianity. So how about talking about this also within the Christian camp? Because uh, my wife likes to watch a lot of Christian television, and she knows I get very, very much concerned and skeptical when a preacher comes out and says something like, God told me, or the Holy Spirit today told me that I should speak about such and such. And after all, honey, whenever someone comes to you and they say, God told me, I want you to put your red flags up immediately and be on guard. Understand? Well, I don't want to deny that that's possible. In other yeah. words, I certainly believe it's possible that God can speak to people today, mm-hmm. okay, that, that they can get, you know, some sort of an impression from God about something being true. I think there is a, I think Planning, for example, has a has a point about the census to Venus. I think there's, I think there's something uh, to that, so I'm, I'm not going to deny that, but if a person's going to stand up and say, God told me this in some sort of authoritative sense, i.e., on the same level as scripture, yeah. you know, I'm going to step back and say, okay, I'm, I'm going to want some sort of evidence that's going to be convincing to me, but in fact what you're telling me is really, in fact, come from God. I'm not going to deny the possibility, yeah. but I'm going to be fairly skeptical of it. As a matter of fact, I find that Christian apologists, Christian philosophers, we tend to be a fairly skeptical skeptical group of people. Yeah. You know, we want something there besides just simply a claim or an affirmation about something. Mm-hmm. We want an argument. We want evidence. And so so I'm not gonna deny the possibility of it. I certainly wouldn't do that. But I'm yes. gonna I'm gonna as you say, red flags are gonna go up. I'm gonna listen very carefully to what this person is saying. And I'm gonna want something more than just simply some sort of well I have a feeling that God spoke to me to take that as authoritative on the level that I might take some something for example as scripture might give us. Yeah. Go ahead, Doctor G. I, I totally, totally agree. I think, you know, we've got to leave space for people to, um, I mean, look, in, in the scriptures, we're told that the Spirit is going to come to guide us and give us wisdom and and things like that. And so in very real time in our lives, the Holy Spirit is involved in leading and guiding and convicting and giving insight. And so we don't want to say that God is not active informing us and, and giving us this kind of thing. At the same time, you're right, the, the dogmatic feel that mm-hmm. that the statement God told me that, that has for us, I, I think we're right to be uncomfortable with that. I think we need to tweak and modify our language and be a little more humble with these types of claims. And I think that that would go a long way toward fixing yeah. it. Yeah, I think one of the most important virtues for us as philosophers, as apologists, and in the area of epistemology is what I refer to often as epistemic humility. Yeah, yeah, just the realization of the limitations of my knowledge, to be able to be careful about what I say I know, to to sit there and say, well, you know, for example, there are times when I think that the Holy Spirit may be impressing something on me, but I put it in exactly that language. I yep, think the Holy Spirit may be impressing something on me here. Right. You know, I certainly don't, I'm not going to stand up and say, I know God told you this. I don't. I just don't have that ability to, to have make that kind of a claim, I don't think, to be honest with you. Um, at least not yet. I've never had that yet. Okay. So I think if we approach these things a little bit more humble, a little bit more the realization that, you know, there's a limit to what I can definitely say here. I don't have a problem with a pastor getting up in the pulpit and say, I've been praying about this a lot lately. I believe the Holy Spirit's been impressing me something on my heart here. I want to show with you where I think he's going to I don't have a problem with that. I think yeah. that's perfectly 
I'm also thinking about how so many times I've been in debates for some Christians on some sort of secondary issue, let's say maybe end times or the age of the earth or something like that, and then when they get appointed a debate where they don't know what to answer, they say, well, you know, the Holy Spirit's told me that this is a proper interpretation of text, then maybe you just need to pray and ask the Holy Spirit to reveal it to you, which I usually refer to that as punting to the Holy Spirit to mask your own inability to answer a question. And well, I'm, that may be what's happening sometimes. I don't deny yeah. that that's certainly possible. I'm very reluctant to immediately impugn somebody's motives or what's going on in their lives. Mm. Maybe truly the Holy Spirit is working in some way or another. I just think we just need to be real careful yeah. when we start talking in, in such positive or almost arrogant tones about about that we know that this is the case. Mm-hmm. You know, I just I I just think we just need to be more humble than that in some way or another. I certainly think it's possible the Holy Spirit can speak to people about things and give them ideas, but you know, when it comes to factual information, I'm not so sure that's the, the best approach to take. Even if fact is true for you inside internally. I think a lot of times only this touches me with something internally, but I don't know if I can use it as evidence to somebody else. Yeah. yeah. See, Nick, this is why I wanted to write the book with Mark. Words yeah. Of wisdom. Yeah. I, I mean, my own wife and I, we've talked about these kinds of things before. She's got one time in her life where she's definitely sure that God was telling her something. And I said, she said to me, do you think that that's, uh, that puts me in the same category as most preachers? And I said, huh? No, but if you were going around nearly every day telling me that God was telling you something over and over, then I'd start thinking, yeah, we got to talk about this now. <laughs> yeah, you, you want to be sensitive about it. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, we're, we're getting into the uh, final part of our interview. So, in, where do we go from here? When we're talking about epistemology, about learning the truth, what are some good guidelines we should be following in our search for truth? Uh, um, well, I'll jump in first here, and then Mark, if you want to jump in as well. Um, here's where, so we started our discussion today with basically an explanation of why this book and why we did this book. And one of the things we said there was, you know, the history of our work together at Liberty was that students were struggling with Jay Wood's book, and we felt that, you know, it's a great book um, as a virtuous epistemology book, but uh, maybe not as a good general introduction. And, I, you know, we still think that's true, um, and we wanted to write something that really, really focused. Its primary focus is just on introducing basic issues and concepts. And um, having said that, though, where would we go from here? Um, you know, I think if, you, if we're studying these types of things, we want to start off, I think, in general, just by studying the, the, the big issues, the larger terrain, what's going on in epistemology, and that's what we're trying to do in the book. But, um, you know, next, what I would advise a student to do is I would focus on the intellectual virtues. I think that Wood's approach is a very, very promising approach for human beings as knowers. Uh, if we want to really get at knowledge, we really want to know things, then that requires a great deal of wisdom, and it requires a great deal of, of intellectual virtue, of being humble and honest and careful. Mm-hmm. So I would encourage people to, to read his book as well as sort of a next step. Um, and, and much of what he says I'm in wholehearted agreement with on how he approaches those types of things. And, you know, Mark said something uh, I don't know exactly how he'll want to chime in on this answer right now, but he said something to that effect earlier, that intellectual humility is just a, an enormously important thing in the life of any human being, but especially for the Christian. So I would I would 
point people in that direction as they as they take a step away from our book now into the next type of thing that they would read and invest in. I would be in that direction. You know, Nick, this is a great example of how uh, um, Jamie and I were almost perfectly paired to write this book together. Because when you asked that question before Jamie even responded, the first thing that I thought about is we need to talk about virtue epistemology. Um, mm -hmm. Because although we certainly, as Jamie said, David's book, which is a very good book, was maybe a little bit not quite in the more general level and maybe a little bit more inaccessible than our, our students were prepared for, I think his emphasis on the idea of building in these intellectual virtues, like a love of the truth, uh, being open to hearing new things and being open to, uh, to new ideas and such like that, being um, humble to realizing how much we don't know, uh, being teachable in the sense of being, uh, being able to listen to other people and to, to being inquisitive and curious. These are all what we call the intellectual virtues that we need to build into our life. I think that's what makes us the best knowers. Certainly there's the basic stuff about epistem about empiricism and rationalism and, and what is knowledge and what does it mean to justify one's knowledge. Those are all important questions that go to the heart of much of epistemology. But to be good epistemologists, I need to I think we need to build into our lives just those basic those basic virtues that become part of our what it means to be a good mother, which is to be able to think and ask questions and listen and not arrive at quite conclusions too quickly, you know, to probably nuance things and see the differences and nuances between them and, and uh, not jump to conclusions uh, that uh, sometimes we see. Um, you know, those are the things that I think we go from where we go from here. And I think the more you build those into your lives, I think the more you're going to be a better knower and really the more you're going to be a better disciple of Jesus Christ. Um, I think the best disciples of Jesus are the ones that are open to listening and hearing things. We don't close our minds to any ideas or any views. We listen to them. You know, if we don't think the view works, if we don't think the evidence supports it, we don't think it explains things very well, well, okay, then we abandon that and we look for the one that does. You know, not listening doesn't mean necessarily I'm going to automatically accept, but I should at least listen to some of the stuff. And I think some of the debates that are going on right now, and you know some of these things I'm talking about here, within Christian circles about some of the issues, they're being done from a position of, of, uh, of um, not even being open to listening to other possibilities. And I think that's something we need to do. We need to be open to listening to them and, and considering them and, and realizing that, I, you know something, I don't know everything yet about this. I need to learn more. And I think when we build those virtues into our lives, I think we're going to grow more as Christians. We're going to grow more as uh, philosophers. We're going to grow more as individual persons. So, so I'm, Jamie you know, and I, we're, we're very much of the same mindset here. Yeah, I'm thinking about how lately in my debates I've been asking people when we debate theism or Christianity, back and forth, I would say. And it's strange that they don't seem to answer this question. Like, when was the last time you read a scholarly book that disagreed with you? Like, if you're not doing that kind of thing, you're not really exploring the other side. You're not really seeking truth. You're not learning. Because you're, you're only reading everything that already agrees with you, and that's fine to read things that agree with you, but in order to really learn, you have to wrestle with an idea that's foreign to you. That's exactly And one of the first things I say to my students, the very first day of class when I teach my philosophy classes, is we're not afraid of disagreement. Philosophers are not afraid of disagreement. It doesn't bother us. It's not like there's a major problem if we disagree. We simply disagree. Disagreement is where we hone our skills and learn how to know and learn how to understand. There's nothing wrong with saying, you know something, that's not my view, but I want to learn from you. What, what can I take from that, and what can I learn from that? And we may disagree, but disagreement is not necessarily a bad thing at all. So, so I think that's part of being a philosopher, just learning, being comfortable 
with the idea that you're going to disagree with people. That's okay. Mm-hmm. Indeed. And I mean, thing with something else you said, Dr. Foreman, about being open to whatever people are saying, that when I read something, say, uh, liberal New Testament scholars, for instance, I don't just go and pick up Bart Ehrman and say, well, Bart Ehrman denies miracles, and he doesn't believe the Bible is the Word of God, so he's got nothing that I can learn from. And say, so I can read this book and say, you know, that's a pretty good point. That's a pretty good interpretation of that particular passage and such. I can pick out points that I agree with him on, because the good thing about reading people you disagree with is, they are quite likely to ask questions about the text or whatever the subject matter is that you will never think to ask on your own. And so when you say, hmm, now that gives me something else I can think about. Well, that's part of also learning and respecting who they are. I mean, Bud Ehrman is a very respectable, high, uh, respectable highly thought of uh, New Testament critical scholar. You know, I'm certainly not going to treat him like he's an idiot. He's not. He's a yeah. man who really knows his stuff, and he's a person who, who I can learn a lot from. Uh, he's done a lot of study in areas mm-hmm. that I can learn from, and those are, and we're not agree, going to agree on everything. Mm-hmm. Um, there's going to be areas where we're going to disagree, and I have my reasons for why I think those, he, he's wrong in particular areas there. But it would be wrong for me to sit there and say, well, you know, he's an idiot. He doesn't know what he's talking about. And unfortunately, too many Christians take that up. We take that approach against, against our opponents. We yeah. treat our opponents like it's a white hat, black hat mentality. They're yeah. all bad, we're all good. And it's just not like that. You know, they have a lot of good things to say. We have a lot of areas where we, we're mistaken and we have problems. We can all learn from one another. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, I think too often there can also be a sort of a poisoning of the well. That a Christian start talking about a scholar to an audience and say, this scholar is a liberal. And immediately, then, every single person in the audience who's a Christian, let's go, warning, warning, be on guard, and reject everything from that point on. And uh, I tell people, look, I can go into the bookstore now and go to the Christianity section where the Christian offers are mixed with the non-Christian offers and just pick out any book that I want whatsoever and read it and still get something from it. I don't even know if a guy who's writing it is a Christian or not. If he is, great. If he isn't, hey, I still get something out of it anyway. Well, there's lots of places we can go with this. Certainly, I, I actually have a problem with the use of the term liberal anyway. I just, I think that term is so misused, misunderstood. I think we need to kind of strike it from our vocabulary for a little while and maybe reintroduce it finally when we really settle the little bit. You know, to be a liberal at one time was not a bad thing. Mm-hmm. You know, the concept of liber, liber, a liberal, okay, came from the whole idea of people who believed in the freedom of the individual to choose. Well, I'm not against that. I think that's fine. I think it's good that liberal. You know, so, so the point is we've just taken a term and we've kind of made it to mean something that eventually I don't think it really means. We don't, we don't take the time to subtly nuance our language. And so we use language in a very flagrant, inflammatory way. And I think we just need to take the time to stop and try to think, well, maybe there's a better way to put this or something like that. And, and not be just so, so, so black and white about these things. Dr. Do? Yeah, I think we have to be very, very careful. We have, um, you know, there's been a lot of really good apologetics that's been done over the last few decades in all disciplines, you know, New Testament, Old Testament, philosophy, theology, historical theology, history itself. The, the faith gets attacked in all these areas, and I think we've had a lot of really good academic work that's been done on that. I'm not always convinced, though, that the attitude 
and the compassion and the disposition uh, has been what it needs to be. We have often resorted to name calling, caricatures, straw men, and just condescension. And I, that's not winning anybody. In fact, it's so counterproductive. I think that we really, really have to be very careful on how we do that. So I would, I would like Mark. I, I don't like us throwing out these labels like, oh, this guy's a liberal, this guy's a this. It's just, mm -hmm. it's probably not the most helpful thing that we can say and do. And it's already, it's immediately going to put up some hostility and some tension between you and the human being that we're interacting with. And so I, I would hope for a better day on that. We would need to continue the high. Um, caliber of academic work that we're doing, but we can certainly do better in the way that we're interacting with people. Well, we've only got a couple of minutes left before we start wrapping things up here. So how about maybe then, since we're talking about research group, giving maybe each of you giving a brief idea of some study tips of sorts you would give to, to the listening audience who says, okay, how can I best sift through the information and pick out the wheat from the chaff and such? Mm. Uh, well, I, I tell you, I have, uh, like I said at the beginning of the show, I'm not a natural academic. I did not get into this because I was the guy in high school or middle school that, you know, had a 4.0 GPA. I struggled and struggled and struggled academically when I was in high school and even in college. So, you know, academics is not something that's come natural to me. I suspect that a lot of the people that would be listening to this podcast would be just like that, you know. Mm -hmm. So for me, learning how to read and really read a book in such a way that I, I, I wasn't wasting my time uh, has been extraordinarily helpful for me. Uh, and what I mean by that is a lot of times what I would do early on is I'd read the book, say if I was writing a paper or something like that or just doing research on something, I would read a book and then I'd set it aside. Um, and then if I was writing something, I'd need to come back and get quotes or something or material out of that book again. And I, I'd almost have to reread it again and again. And while that was helpful to reread it again, I've found over the years that if I'll just read it very carefully, it's going to take me a lot longer now, so it slows me down instead of speeding me up. But if I actually invest the time in reading something carefully up front, mark it well, and then when I'm done reading it, outline it in a Word document and harvest all of that that I've done, the key thoughts of a chapter, the key thoughts of a book, the outline of the book, the outline of the argument, the critique of the argument, so on and so forth, and really study back through that kind of stuff. I've found that to be extremely helpful for me. Um, there are lots of other things I think that will work, but this has really, really revolutionized the way I, I read things, and it's also revolutionized the way that I'll prepare to write things, uh, whether it's a book or an article or anything else like that. Yeah, I agree with that. I think that's some very practical advice that Jamie just gave there. David, I'll say a couple things here. First of all, the virtues that we talked about before, the being to build into your life to be a good learner, to be a good knower, I think that's a very important place to start. Start thinking in terms of, of uh, you know, how I approach things and being open and teachable and, and uh, um, you know, working hard and serious. Those are certainly aspects you want to build into your life. A second thing I would say is it would be a good idea if you really want to do this to find a scholar whom you feel you can really trust to be completely and open and honest with you and to help you along, disciple you in a sense. Um, mm -hmm. You know, somebody that you might, you might respect, you, you think this person is a good scholar, they're a good learner. Not necessarily, I'm not saying go, go find a Christian who you're going to like or something like that. I mean, certainly would be a Christian person might fill, fill this very well. But just as somebody who's a good scholar, find that person, read that person a lot, kind of hook up to their star and let them kind of disciple you. Even if you don't know them, disciple you through their readings of how to, how to be able to approach these kinds of topics would be, would be one thing I would say. And the, the final thing I would say is 
as you start to study some of these areas, read broadly, read widely. You want to be discerning in what you read. But don't just read those people you agree with. You know, um, as you said earlier, Nick, you know, find a book that you don't agree with and read some of that too. Okay. I mean, I think that's a, I think that's a healthy thing to do. Now, you want to be careful. Okay. I don't want people to start, you know, reading something that's going to cause them tremendously to start doubting everything they know. But just to say, it's good to read people that we don't always agree with, to see the other perspective from their particular point of view. And that's where, again, that person that, 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 that person you found that you kind of, you know, a scholar or a disciple, you will help you with those kinds of things and those kinds of questions. I think that's some places where you might be able to go with at least to start to do some of the kind of work we're doing here. Okay, well, we got a little over five minutes left, so it's time to start wrapping things up. Uh, Dr. Foreman, if uh, someone wants to find out more about you, do you have a website or a blog or anything? You know, it's really funny. I, 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 I'm an old guy here. I, the, the technology came late into my life, so I, I'm kind of technologically behind everybody. I don't have a website. I don't have a blog. I teach at Liberty University. They certainly are welcome to contact me. You can email there, mforman at liberty.edu. I'd be glad to answer any emails that come my particular direction, or at least give them advice or send them places. <laughs> they can read some of my other my other writings that you've mentioned previously to get a little bit more information with me. I'd like to recommend my book, Prelude to Philosophy. is a great book to start if you're going to start on the philosophical journey. I think it's a good place to start. At least, obviously, I'm going to say that it's my book. Um, but, uh, um, you know, I don't, I, don't, I, so I don't have a website or a blog or anything like that, but people can certainly reach me through email. I'd be more than glad to communicate to people through that means. Dr. Duke, same question to you. Same thing here. I don't have a website or a blog. Um, I, they, if they want to know basic information about me, things that I've presented on or published on, uh, my CV is available at Southeastern's website on my faculty page. They could go there and get that. My contact information is also there. They could also um, find me on Twitter, uh, Jamie K. Du at, uh, uh, on Twitter, and then I'm on Facebook as well. So, um, But now, yeah, no blog or website or anything, but most of my publication and academic information is on our school website. Okay, and since I'm already talking with you, Dr. Do here, is there any final message you'd like to leave before the Deeper Waters audience? Well, I think I think we live in an age today where um, you know the pendulum always swings back and forth. I think we live in an age today where it's going to take faithful minds and faithful hearts uh, to do the work that God has before us and that needs to be done in our culture. We don't live in a day and age where we can continue just being ignorant about everything. We're going to have to be informed doesn't mean that you've got to have a PhD, doesn't mean that you've got to, you know, study philosophy per se, but I think the days of an ignorant ministry are over. We really need to work hard. We need to love God with all of our mind, and we need to love people enough that we're willing to invest in things and learn and be learners. And so I would very much want to call people to learning and to academics for that reason. At the same time, the stereotypes of the ivory tower, the warnings there about the ivory tower are legitimate concerns. I, I've watched a lot of my friends go and shift so hard into academics. And it's not that they lost their soul in the process, it's just that they grew so cold. And I think we really, the task is to, to maintain a vibrant love for God and obedience to him in all aspects of your life, but to really bring in the academic and the intellectual side of this as well. I think, I think if we can do those types of things, love God and love people well with our minds and with our hands and our hearts, I think we'll be going a long way. So I would urge people to do that. Dr. Foreman, I think same question. I disagree with Jamie more. You know, you, you read a lot of the past to coming out of Jamie there, and I, and I think that, that definitely needs to be said. 
that academic support is really hard, but we cannot lose the spiritual side of things here. We cannot lose our warmth for Christ and love for Him and realize that that's the reason we're doing all this, not just simply to win arguments or academic debates. I will say one other thing, and James touched on this, but I just want to emphasize it a little bit more. Because we're going to go into doing this kind of stuff. One of the things you need to be prepared for is be prepared to do some hard work. Okay? It's not so much that the stuff is really hard to understand, but it may take some time. It's going to be challenging for you. Mm-hmm. And therefore, I think that we need to be careful that, you know, I, I want to be careful here, but I think that a, a Christianity, modern Christianity, a lot of it's just simply become kind of lazy. And, uh, and we're not doing the hard work that needs to be done. You know, and I think that we need to be prepared that that's what's going to be involved. If you really want to go out there and be effective in reaching the world in an intellectual, academic way, you're going to have to be prepared to do some really hard work to do that. So it's hard work that's involved here, but it's, really, it's, it's just worth it so much. And so, uh, so that would be the, the final message that I would want to leave with people. Well, I'd like to thank both of you for coming on, taking your time, and I hope we'll see you both again sometime. Hey, thanks for having us, Nick. It's been a pleasure. I hope so, too, Nick. It was a pleasure to be with you. And I have to remind everyone that next week, Braxton Hunter is going to be my guest. Talking about his book, Core Facts. It's going to be an exciting interview. Now, I'm signing off, and we will see you next week. It's here, the official Rock Radio mobile app. Listen to your favorite rock radio programs on your iPhone, iPad, iPod, Kindle Fire, Android smartphones, and tablets. The best thing is, it's absolutely free. Download it now from the iTunes or Google Play App Store. Or get a link at our website, cyiworldwide.com. Rock Radio. Christian radio that doesn't suck. You're listening to Rock Radio 2.0.